Okay, praises be to our loving Father that we are again gathered to study His words and His commands tonight in our BQA. In this episode of the Bible Question and Answer, we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement, which is what we are preparing for, because it's one of the feasts that we're going to be observing after we observe the Day or Feast of Trumpets. And so in connection with the Day of Atonement, there's a lot of buzz, there's a lot of talk about the red heifer sacrifice, how Israel is preparing the red heifer in preparation for the temple they're going to build. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and see how it connects with the work of atonement. But before we go ahead and do that, just as a quick summary, we know that the Moedim, which are the feasts, the word feast actually means Moedim, which is which represents appointed times. Many people think of the word feast and think of eating, right? And there's nothing wrong with eating. Yahuwah wants us to be festive in, these, in, in, in certain gatherings. However, the, the word feast in Hebrew is actually appointed time. In these appointed times, there are set appointments that Yahuwah has predetermined before the creation of the universe that will take place in the process of restoration and redemption so that we can receive salvation. So if we look at this chart, we have the list of appointed times or feasts which correspond to specific dates the Passover, the unleavened bread, the first feast of first fruits, feast of weeks. We know on Passover, Yahushua died, and feast of unleavened bread, he was buried, he was in grave. Feast of first fruits, that's when our King Yahushua resurrected and made an appearance before the people, and the feast of weeks represents Yahushua uh, sending forth the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to talk about today the feast of trumpets which we talked about last week and we know this corresponds to the work of Yahusha in returning the harpazo in bringing the assembly together with him in the air so that they can be taken to the heavens and so that's the first uh, feasts of Yahuwah today we're going to talk about the day of atonement which is on the 10th day of the seventh month if you notice the last three feasts, which are the autumn feasts, because they all fall on the seventh month, they correspond to the second coming or second advent of our King Yahusha. So what is the Day of um, Atonement all about? Let's begin our studies here in Leviticus 23, 26 to 32. And Yahuwah spoke to Moses saying, also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to Yahuwah. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before Yahuwah your God. For any person who is not afflicted and so on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not work on that same, and any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So according to scriptures, what is the meaning and purpose of the day of atonement? It is one of the feasts and it is observed on the 10th day of the seventh month. So on the first day of the seventh month, we observe the Feast of Trumpets. On the 10th day, we observe the Day of 
atonement. On the day of atonement, there are certain requirements that Yahuwah has for his people. What is one of these requirements? One, we are to have a holy convocation on the day of atonement. This means we're going to have an assembly, and the word convocation means to read, and so we will proclaim the feast of Yahuwah, the great works he has done on that appointed day. So we will have a sacred assembly or a congregation of worship service. We will join this congregation of worship service via Zoom for those who are not able to come in person, and we shall celebrate the Day of Atonement together as an assembly. What also is the requirement on the Day of Atonement? The Bible says you shall have no work on that day. It will be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. So even if it's not the seventh day, even if it falls on some other day, it's going to be treated as a Sabbath. We call this the High Sabbath or a special Sabbath, and we will have no customary work on that day. Instead, we will remember, express thanksgiving, and enjoy company with Yahuwah. We will think of him, and we will express our great joy in fellowshipping with Father and his son, Yahushua. What also, and this is an important part of the celebration of the Day of Atonement, what also is required of us? If you notice, there's a heavy emphasis on a certain requirement that Yahuwah has for each one of us, and that is we are to afflict our souls. Bible says you shall afflict your souls for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. You shall afflict your soul. So throughout this passage, the Bible reminds us of the importance of afflicting our souls. It's so important, the Bible says, if we are not afflicting our souls, then we are going to be cut off from his people. This is why the day of trumpets flows right to the day of atonement. When the trumpet is blown, we are to be thankful for the things that Yahuwah has done for us. And at the same time, the trumpet blowing signals the beginning of affliction for our souls. This is why for 10 days, and especially on the Day of Atonement, we are to practice this work of afflicting our souls. Now you might be asking, well, what does that mean to afflict your souls? How can we carry out this command? Because make sure that you understand this is a command from our Father Yahuwah. It's something we need to observe because it's connected with atonement. Atonement is needed, but for us to obtain the benefits and blessing of atonement, Yahuwah wants that we express affliction in soul. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at the word afflicted. How is it used? Or what word is used in the Hebrew that is translated afflict? It's the Hebrew word ana, Hebrew 6031. And when you examine its usage in the Bible, it contains the following. It mentions to be occupied with, to be busy with. And so we are to busy ourselves in humbling, right? Becoming low, humble oneself, to humble, to humble, weaken oneself, to be afflicted, to be humble, to humble oneself, to be afflicted. And so the word afflicted, it's kind of synonymous with what other word? Humility. We are to humble ourselves. We are to make ourselves low. And so we are to busy ourselves 
In other words, we need to practice it consistently. We need to practice humbling ourselves, humbling our souls. Now, what does it mean to humble and to afflict our souls? The word soul in Hebrew is Hebrew, the Hebrew nefesh, Hebrew 5315, which basically means yourself, your life, creature, person, appetite, mind, living, being, uh, desire, emotion, passion. In other words, it represents your entire being. You yourself as a living being, your essence, and this includes one's appetite. This is why there are people in afflicting their souls, they practice spiritual fasting. Because when we fast, we exercise control over our appetites. However, if we desire to practice fasting, especially on the Day of Atonement, we need to make sure we get medical clearance because not everyone has the capacity to physically practice uh, fasting. However, when we do fast, we have to keep in mind it's not just about not eating food. That's not the point of afflicting your souls because a person can fast, do away with food. They will not eat uh, for a certain period of time and at the same time not fulfill the purpose of afflicting one's soul. And so when we afflict our soul, when we humble ourselves, by controlling the appetites, by controlling our mind, by controlling our desire and our emotions. What does that actually mean? Well, the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 7, in preparation for the Day of Atonement, the Bible says, Apostle Paul says, because the carnal mind, which is the flesh, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, for indeed, for, nor indeed can be. We have to keep in mind, even though we have been purchased by the blood of our King Yahushua, and because of this, we have become the sons and daughters of Abba, daughters, sons and daughters of Yahuwah. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed, right? This is why we still groan in the flesh. We still get sick. We still grow old. We still die, right? Because our bodies have not yet been redeemed. And so we are living in a body. This body is made of flesh. The word flesh is synonymous with carnal, carne, flesh, right? And so there is this hostility, there's this battle, ongoing battle between our flesh and our spirit. And so we ought to be feeding the spirit, not the flesh. This is why in this period that is in preparation for the Day of Atonement, and especially on the Day of Atonement, what we need to do is to control the carnal mind. Why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. We want God to be with us, not against us. But if we will live according to the flesh, but well, even if we do without food, then we, we are still hostile against God. And we don't want that. And so what do we need to do throughout this whole period of preparation for the Day of Atonement? Let's read the book of Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so when it comes to controlling the flesh and the appetites, not all fleshly appetites are against the law of God, right? I mean, of course, we need to eat to nourish our body. There's nothing wrong against that. This is why if one is not able to actually physically fast because of certain medical conditions, that's okay. It's not the that's not the real and wholehearted purpose of afflicting your souls. It's about humbling ourselves making sure we're controlling the appetites and the lust of the flesh so that we can live by 
the Spirit. And so what do we need to do so that we can feed the Spirit and live by the Spirit and control and overcome the deeds of the flesh? Romans 13 verse 14, but put on the Lord Yahushua Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. This is why when we afflict our souls, when we humble ourselves, we don't feed or make provision for the desires of the flesh. One of the purposes of fasting, when you do away with food, is that when you get the hunger craving, because when you don't eat for an hour or two hours, you get the cravings, right? This is the cravings of the flesh. And so one of the purposes of fasting is when you get the cravings of the flesh, it reminds you about your responsibility to satisfy that craving instead of physic with physical food, with spiritual food. And so every time you get the craving, you should be saying to yourself, I'm going to humble myself instead of feeding myself physically, I'm gonna feed myself spiritually. And so you allow provision for the spirit instead of provision for the flesh. And so it's a good practice for those who are able to do spiritual fasting. However, the purpose of spiritual fasting is when you have these cravings for physical food, you satisfy it not with physical food, but with spiritual nourishment. When you do that, the flesh weakens, the spirit strengthens, and you humble yourself with repentance to prepare your heart to receive the power of Yahuwah Abba. This is why atonement and repentance goes hand in hand. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is about the relationship between repentance and atonement. This is why the days that lead to Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, are days of repentance, days of self-examination, days of looking deeply into our hearts and repenting from our sins. Denying ourselves food can be a metaphor to denying the flesh, but the real lesson and literal application of Yom Kippur is repentance leading to denying flesh that is against the law of God. And so the Day of Atonement, it's kind of like a day of judgment. Right? Because those who do not afflict their souls are going to be judged, and the result of that judgment is they're going to be removed from the people of Yahuwah. This is why we need to make sure to take seriously the preparations that lead up to the Day of Atonement, so that we can be atoned for our sins. And so what is the purpose of atonement? What is that all about anyways? Because it's what, that's why they call it Day of Atonement, to make atonement for you before Yahuwah, your God. Well, our, we need atonement because as human beings, whether we like to admit it or not, we're sinners, right? I mean, is there anyone among us not a sinner? We are all sinners. We are all guilty of sin. And when a person commits sin, it does something with his or her relationship with God. What is that? In Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So because of sin, there is this wall between man and God. And so man became the enemy of God because of sin. And so the problem of sin is dealt with by atonement. And so Yahuwah in the Old Testament, not our time today, okay? We're talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Yahuwah God gave provisions 
by which people during that time can have their sins covered or atoned for so that there is reconciliation. And so atonement, in its essence, is all about reconciliation between man and God. Why is reconciliation needed? Because man is a sinner, and because of sin, he has been separated from God. So atonement, its purpose is to bring man to God, to bring man to, bring man to Yahuwah once again. During the Old Testament times, if you were a sinner, provision was made. What did you have to do? Well, if you were a spiritual leader, you had to offer a sin offering. And you offer a male goat with no defects. If you're a regular common person, you violate Yahuwah's commands, and then you begin to become aware of it, you offer a female goat with no defect. So these were the provisions according to the law that a person has to do to be atoned for their sins. However, the Day of Atonement is something different. The Day of Atonement is more extensive and comprehensive than a person individually asking for the forgiveness of his sins. Okay? Why? What is the Day of Atonement all about? If you look at the passage, the tenth day of the seventh month, so it's just one day. It's one day uh, of the, uh, it's called the Day of Atonement. When we look at that phrase, Day of Atonement in Hebrew, this is what we find for the word atonement. The word Kippur is the root word, but when you look at its usage for that phrase, Day of Atonement, it is Kippurim, which means it is plural. You notice the word that is actually used, although the root word is Kippur, it is used as Kippurim, which is plural. And so it means atonement, expiation, but only in plural form, atonement. So when we think of the Day of Atonement, it's like a day of multiple atonements, right? This is why the Day of Atonement back in the Old Testament time included a lot of activities and its purpose is to atone for our sins. Verse 28, and you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the Day of Atonement to make atonement for you before Yahuwah you are. God, the word atone, tapar, what does it actually mean? It means to cover, to expiate, to cancel, to cleanse, to purge, to reconcile. And so on the day of atonement in the Old Testament times, a series of rituals were done for the purpose of national cleansing, national expiation of sin, national removal of sin, not just one person but it will remove the sin of the entire community. That's the difference between a Day of Atonement and a person offering a sin offering to Yahuwah to have his or her personal sins forgiven. So the Day of Atonement is a day of national forgiveness, and without that, well, there's going to be judgment for Israel. And so to make atonement on the Day of Atonement involves many facets, different acts and different rituals that will cover different parts of one's relationship with God because sin and its atonement for sin is going to affect how God and how we deal and relate with our Father. And so there's another passage in Leviticus that talks all about the Day of Atonement, and that's what we're going to look into. We're going to look at what was done back in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. Unlike the Day of Trumpets, Right? The Day of Atonement, it's really elaborate and it's, there's a lot of information in the Holy Bible about what happens 
on the Day of Atonement. And this is recorded, for example, in Leviticus 16, 30, 32 to 34, because on this day of atonement, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. So it's a national cleansing. Then before Yahuwah, you will be clean from all your sins. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred wooden garments and make atonement for the holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as Yahuwah commanded Moses. So in on the day of atonement, there are three, three things basically that's being atoned for or cleansed or purged, right? Number one, the priests are to be atoned for. Number two, the place of worship, which includes the most holy place, the tent of meeting, the altar, that has to be atoned for, right? And then finally, the people themselves, all the Israelites will be atoned for their sins forgiven. And so what made the Day of Atonement really special? Once in a year event. Well, in this event, when a person's sins are going to be atoned for, it will involve the entirety of the tabernacle. When we look at the tabernacle, it's divided into three parts. You have the outer courtyard, right? This is where they burn the offerings, remember? They, this is where they kill the, uh, the animal in the outer courtyard and in the holy places where the priests, the regular priests, will carry out the functions. And in the holy place, you have the altar of incense, the menorah, the table of showbread. But then there's a third part. It's called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And it's separated by another curtain, right? And this Holy of Holies contains something that is sacred to Yahuwah. What is that? It is called the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, this Ark of the Covenant is used for the forgiveness of sins. This is why the Day of Atonement is special. And the purpose of the Day of Atonement is, again, to cleanse and purge the priests, the people, and the place of worship of all its pollutions because the purging and the cleaning of the priests, the people, and the place of worship is of paramount importance to maintain the relationship of Yahuwah with his people. Remember, Yahuwah is a holy and righteous God. For him to have a relationship with his people, there has to be cleansing. And the cleansing has to take place on different levels. The priests, the people, and the place of worship. So how is this carried out using the Ark of the Covenant? Well, Leviticus 16 verse 2 says, uh, Yahuwah said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain for whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the Ark's cover, the place of atonement, is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. And so the Ark it's called the place of atonement. It's called the place of atonement because it's the place, it is the structure that is able to cover the sins of all the people, right? Instead of an, every individual asking for forgiveness of sins. This is like a national covering of the sins of the people of Israel. It will involve the Ark of the Covenant. And we all know the Ark of the Covenant that points to who? Our King Yahushua. There's always a relationship. Everything in the tabernacle, everything in the Old Testament, it kind of points to our King Yahushua. So on the Day of Atonement, 
a day of national repentance, which leads to a day of national cleansing, the high priest will use the tabernacle. Of course, he will use the outer courtyard, the holy place, but he will now bring the blood of the bull, the blood of the goats into the Ark of the Covenant for the atonement for the sins of Israel, his own sins, and for the place of worship. Inside the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant. This is how it may look like according to the description of the whole Bible. Of course, we don't know if it looks exactly like that. Perhaps it's, it resembles something like that, but one day we're going to see how it looks like. But the Ark of the Covenant was, important, was an important part for the obtaining of the forgiveness of one's sins. And so when Aaron, the high priest, is going to fulfill his function, that for on the Day of Atonement, what does he do? In 3 down to 5, when Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen on the garments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And so the purpose of these sacrifices, remember, is to purge, to cleanse the people, right? To purge and cleanse the priests and also the uh, the place of worship. And so how is it done? Well, it requires two animals, basically. Uh, there are other animals too, but the main ones are the bull and the goats. The bull was for the sins of the high priest and his family. The goats is for the people of Israel. And so the blood of the goat is going to be used to cover and atone for, and atone for the sins of the people. However, something interesting about the goat ritual. In the goat ritual, it mentions two male goats, right? And there's a reason why it, there's two male goats. One is to be sacrificed and one is to be regarded or treated as a scapegoat. And so how do you determine that? In 6, 8 to 9, he is to cast sacred locks. This is high priest. He's going to cast a sacred lock. It's like pulling a die or something like that. To determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to Yahuwah and which one will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then uh, present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for Yahuwah. And so remember, there's a, the bull that is chosen by the high priest for his sins, the sins of his family. And then there's the goat that is to be also sacrificed in the blood that will atone for the sins of the people. But there's also another goat that will be released into the wild and released to the wilderness of Azazel, right? To be a scapegoat. And so that's the goat. And so it's determined by casting lots. And once the, lot, the lots are cast, the, the goat that is going to be slaughtered is determined. And then, of course, the slaughtering is going to take place. The other goat, the scapegoat, is going to be released into the wilderness. And it, it will take symbolically the sins of the people of Israel. And so once in Leviticus 16, 11, 12, Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with Yahuwah. After he has slaughtered the bull as a sin offering, he will fill an incense burner with burning coals from the altar that stands before Yahuwah. Then he will take two handfuls of fragrant powder incense and will carry the burner and the incense behind the inner curtain. And so he will go all the way into the 
sanctuary and there's a curtain and behind that curtain is an incense burner he will put the incense there to kind of cover the ark of the covenant Leviticus 16 13 there in Yahuwah's presence he will put the incense on the burning coal so that a cloud of incense will rise over the ark's cover the place of atonement that rests on the ark of the covenant if he follows his instructions he will not die so he's kind of a depiction of the priests uh, putting the incense and so this way the, the, the cloud covers the ark of the covenant and so when the priest goes in and out of the most holy place the people outside will not be able to see the ark of the covenant so it kind of covers the view of the, the, the incense and so once that happens he takes the blood in Leviticus 16 14 then he must take some of the blood of the bull dip his finger in it and sprinkle it on the east side of the atonement cover he must sprinkle blood seven times with his finger in front of the atonement cover and so he will take the blood of the bull that he sacrificed right for, for his sins this is for his sins and the sins of his family and he will sprinkle it seven times and afterwards he will take the goat that was slaughtered right an Aaron will slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people, for the people, and carry its blood behind the inner curtain, there he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. So the bull's blood covered the sins of the priest, right? And the, the goat's blood covered the sins of the people of Israel. And so they kill the goat, and they sprinkle the blood again on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat and then what happens next through this process he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites Aaron will come out to purify the, al uh, the altar that stands before Yahuwah he will do this by taking some of the blood from the bull and the goat and putting it on each of the horns of the altar and so now the blood of the bull and the goat is used to cleanse the place of worship use a picture of the high priest of course this is not real this is all acting right placing on the horns for example to cleanse the tabernacle the most holy place in the place of worship and this is done because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the people of israel and so once this happens you know everything is successful in verse 17 is that no one else is allowed inside the tabernacle when Aaron enters it for the purification ceremony in the most holy place no one may enter until he comes out again after purifying himself his family and all the congregation of Israel making them right with Yahuwah and so after the, the, the ceremony of the blood of the bull and the goat and the purification of the place of worship comes the next ritual which is about the, the other goat the other goat that's still alive right and so what is this all about 2022 when aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar he must present the live goat he will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness rebellion sins of the people of israel in this way he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness as the goat goes into the wilderness it will carry all the people's sin upon itself into a desolate land and so this is a nice metaphor uh, of what happens with our sins 
when it's transferred to the scapegoat, because that's what the placing of the hands upon the goat does, it basically kind of transfers the sins of the people, its wickedness, places it on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat is released into the wild, into Azazel. And so it's a picture of Yahuwah God removing our sins far away from us, right? And so it's a nice way to tell, it's a nice picture of what Yahuwah God does with the sins on the Day of Atonement. This is why the Day of Atonement was considered the most important feast, because it was at that point that Yahuwah will not only remove the sin of his people, but remember it no more. So the priest will lay his hands on it, right? He will confess it, and he will release it to the wild. And so this is what happens on the Day of Atonement. This is why it's called the Day of Atonement, because it covers the sins of the people of Israel, not just one individual, like during a sin offering, right? But the entirety of the community of Israel, the entirety of the nation of Israel. Now, why is this important to us? Why do we observe the Day of Atonement? Remember, the reason why we observe the feast is for two reasons, right? What are those two reasons? The festivals and the Sabbath will be served as a memorial and a rehearsal to honor Yahuwah and Yahushua. It's a memorial because we remember what Yahuwah has done on these specific days, and we are thankful to Yahuwah because of that. For example, the Day of Atonement. Why are we thankful for the Day of Atonement? Because our ancestors, the people of Israel, their sins were forgiven, and their sins were forgotten because of the sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement. At the same time, we also know our King Yahushua was being foreshadowed, right? If we read Hebrews 10, he and Colossians 2, the feast foreshadowed the coming work of our King Yahushua. How was this done? How does the atonement, the Day of Atonement, serve as a memorial, for example, to honor Yahuwah and Yahushua? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, 1, 9, 5, the book of Hebrews. Is that an Old Testament book or a New Testament book? This is a New Testament book, right? And so we're talking about Yahushua and how he fulfilled these different functions, these different sacrifices involving atonement. The different sacrifices involving atonement was all fulfilled by our King Yahushua. How so? Let's go to Hebrews 9, 1 to 5 to, to give you the connection. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. We showed you the tabernacle. It had an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place, right? A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Okay, that's, I, I didn't put that there. It was Apostle Paul who put that there. Okay, 9, 6, down to 7. Uh, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. And so if a person had committed sin, um, they would go to the priest, bring a bull or bring a goat, right? Have it killed, and the sins will be atoned for. 
But once a year, there's general atonement for the whole community of Israel. And so verse 7 says, but only the high priest entered the inner room once a year. On what day was that? The day of atonement. And never without blood, which he offered for himself, the bull, and for the sins of the people, the goat, had committed in ignorance. So these are the sacrifices involving the day of atonement. Now, take a look at what the Bible continues to say about the day of atonement. Hebrews 9, 8 to 10. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And so what was happening in the Old Testament, what had a limited effectivity, it doesn't cover internal change. It only covers externally the outward appearance. And something deeper had to be at work involving the spirit of Yahuwah. And this happened when Yahusha died. When Yahusha died, what happened to that the curtain that separates the most holy place? It was torn into two. It opened a, a, a new way for us to live. In other words, that because of the death of our King Yahusha, we now have access to the most holy place. We now have fellowship with Yahuwah. Well, how can this be? It can only be if the death of Yahusha is able to replace the purposes of the different sacrifice involved in atonement. This is why we need to look, was the death of Yahusha when he died on the cross, does it cover the requirements of atonement? And so the Old Testament, it gives us a description of how atonement is made. And so when Yahusha died on the cross and he shed his blood, he shed blood, does it cover the requirement of the atonement? That was prescribed in the Old Testament for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, to answer that question, Apostle Paul continues with 11 down to 14. It says, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. However, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And so what Apostle Paul is saying here is, when the, the, when the uh, high priests of old, like Aaron and Eleazar, the high priests of old, right? When they were giving, when they were performing their sacrifices, it only covered outwardly our sins. It only covered our sins. But when Yahushua offered his own blood, when he entered a different tabernacle, this tabernacle was, made, was not made by the hands of men. This was a tabernacle in heaven. You know what that tells us? There's a tabernacle in heaven, and the high priest of the tabernacle in heaven is our king, Yahusha. 
This is why he went to heaven, and we believe he went there on a day of. When do you think he went? When do you think he performed these sacrifices of our atonement? On the day of atonement. So there's a there's a, a temple, there's a tabernacle in heaven, and what we have here on earth are copies of what we what is there in heaven. Yahushua did not enter the tabernacle made by man. He went to the tabernacle of heaven. And when he went to heaven, what did he do? He satisfied the requirements of the day of atonement. This is why not only did he become the lamb of God, he also became the high priest for us. And as a high priest, guess what? He sacrificed himself, his own blood. And because of this, what was he able to purchase for us? Eternal redemption. And this is really a most amazing statement. I want you to think about the power of what our King Yahushua did. His sacrifice, his work of his shed blood obtained for us, not a once a year redemption forgiveness of sins. It is eternal redemption. And so when we celebrate, when we observe the Day of Atonement, we're going to be thankful. We're going to be thankful for Yahuwah because of what he did. He became our high priest. And as our high priest, he offered himself so that we can enjoy, we can live freely under the protection of his eternal redemption. Isn't that beautiful? This is why we should always be thankful of our King Yahushua. He's our high priest. Under what covenant is he high priest? 9.15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so we are thankful on the day of atonement for what Yahushua did. Eternal redemption, which means we are going to receive the promise eternal inheritance because he is the high priest and the mediator of a new covenant. Why is this the case under the new covenant? In Hebrews 10, the after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so the blood of Yahushua makes us perfect, not just outwardly, but especially inwardly. And by his death, and eventually afterwards, he sent his spirit, and it makes us perfect in the eyes of Yahuwah Abba, so that we can be free to obey the laws, the Ten Commandments of our Father. So there's so much we are thankful for. And one of the things we are thankful for is Yahushua became our high priest, right? You know, when Yahuwah gave the, uh, the first four, or the first three, actually, the first three feasts, the last four feasts were not yet established. The first four feasts, actually, we should say all the way to Pentecost. In the book of Exodus chapter 12, Yahuwah gave the first four feasts, but he did not yet give the last three feasts until afterwards in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. Okay? And so 
in the first four feasts, we have Yahusha as the Lamb, Passover. And so when we celebrate Passover, we are thankful to God because Yahushua became the Passover Lamb, by which Yahuwah passes over us. The wrath of God passes over us, and we have a new covenant made with our King, Yahushua. The Day of Atonement, we're thankful because the Lamb, which was sacrificed, becomes our high priest. So we express thanksgiving, we remember our King Yahushua becoming the high priest who offers his own blood. He offered his own blood. So that we can have eternal redemption. You notice what that replaced? The offering of our King Yahushua with his own blood, what did it replace? Well, look at this. The blood of goats, the blood of bulls, the ashes of a heifer. Blood of goats, what is that? The goat sacrifice, which represents the covering for the sins of the people. The bulls, which represents the, the covering of the sins of the high priest. And then something else, though. You notice something else? We haven't talked about this yet, but the Apostle Paul added it. And so he is involved in the work of atonement. What is that that Apostle Paul added? It is also covered by the one sacrifice of our king, the perfect sacrifice of our king, Yahushua. It covers even the sacrifice called the ashes of the ashes of a heifer. What is that? What is the heifer sacrifice all about? Let's read the book of Numbers 19, 1 down to 2. Yahuwah said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law of Yahuwah's command. Tell the Israelites to bring a red heifer without defect or blemish, and it has never been under a yoke. And so the Bible mentions to Moses and to Aaron concerning a command to bring a red heifer. What is this all about? Well, what's a heifer? A heifer is a young female cow that has not born a calf. And so how young? About three years old. Is it what a red heifer looks like? Does it look red to you? It's not really reddish red. It's red enough, right? But it's interesting because red symbolizes blood, right? Sacrifice. And a heifer is a female cow, and it's interesting because a female is what brings life. It's the instrument that brings life. And Yahushua's death pictures uh, giving, the giving of life. The death and sacrifice of Yahushua is to give life. There's something interesting. Anyways, what's uh, this heifer? It's without defect or blemish, and it's never been under a yoke. And so those are the requirements. And what was the purpose of the red heifer? Well, God tells them to go outside the camp and to slaughter it. And so when it says outside the camp, what they do is to really take it outside of the camp. And so this is a, 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 an artist's rendition of where they have the sacrifice take place. So you can see the... Uh, the ark, the tabernacle, the temple there, on the left upper corner, you see it? The left upper corner, you see the temple? And so this red heifer sacrifice is taken all the way uh, far from the camp, right? You see the red heifer? And so it's like a walkway that leads all the way to the, the curtain. And so the priest is right there in front of the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the red heifer. And so what will the priest do? 
1940. Eleazar, the priest, is to take some of his blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. Remember the bull and the goat? How many times was it sprinkled on the uh, mercy seat? Seven times. Here, seven times, but towards the tent, the tent of meeting. But it's far away from the tabernacle, right? I don't know how far away it is, but it's pretty far away. It's outside of camp. But you can still have, you, you still have a visibility of the tent of meeting. And so it's sprinkled seven times toward the tent of meeting. And then uh, what they do after is verse five, while he watches the heifer is to be burned. It's hide, flesh, blood, and offal. The priest is to make, is to take some cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet wood, and throw it onto the burning heifer. So the, the heifer is being burned. While it's being burned, you throw in cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool which is, by the way, involved in the ceremony for cleansing a, a leper. And so it's a part of the ingredients for a cleansing ceremony. And so when you get the, uh, the heifer is burning, you throw in the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet wool into the ashes of the heifer, you have a mixture. And what do you do with that mixture? Verse 9, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They shall be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for the purification from sin. Of course, this is not what people call today holy water. That's different. This is not holy water. This is a water of cleansing used in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, of course, we don't need this. This is what was being done in the Old Testament. This water of cleansing. Now, you might be thinking, this red heifer sacrifice, what was its purpose? Was its purpose to take away sin? No. Remember, the word atonement covers a lot of definitions, right? And one of the definitions is to expiate sin, to remove sin. But another part of the definition is to cleanse, right? So what's the purpose of this purification from sin, this water of cleansing? Who was it made for? Well, let's read uh, verses 11 to 16. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. Not only that, whoever touches the body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles Yahuwah's tabernacle. Verse 14. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Okay, Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. So even if you did not touch the body of the person, if you are in the tent and inside that tent is a dead person, you're unclean, right? And so let's say you are in a tent and somebody has a heart attack and dies. You become unclean for how long? Seven days. I mean, you did not commit sin, right? But even though you did not commit sin, because of your exposure to the presence of death, you are considered ceremonially unclean, okay? And so the purpose of, of these passages is to tell us that Yahuwah God is not a God of the dead, but the God of what? The living. I just want you to keep that in mind. Okay? And so even if you're out in the open and you touch someone who has been killed with a sword, or someone who died a natural death, or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. So if you're walking across the field, and all of a sudden you stumble and fall and you accidentally touch the bone of something dead, well, that means 
if you touch a human bone, you will be unclean for how long? For seven days. That means you are not ceremonially fit to worship Yahuwah because Yahuwah is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. So your contact with or exposure with death is enough for a person to be ceremonially unclean, unfit to worship Yahuwah, even if you did not commit sin at that point, right? This is why something has to be done because we're all exposed to death. Humanity is exposed to death. Mankind is appointed to die. We're exposed to death all the time. And sin and death, they go together. Where there's sin, there's always death, right? And so we're exposed to death. And so what did Yahuwah God do? He gave the red heifer sacrifice for the purpose of cleansing us when we become ceremonially unclean. This is why in verse 17 to 19, for the, per the unclean person put some ashes from the burnt purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. And a man who is ceremonially, ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. You must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or someone who has been killed or someone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle the unclean on the third and seventh days. And on the seventh day, he is to purify him. The person being cleansed must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and that evening will be, and, and that evening he will be clean. So the Bible tells us the process of purification using the red heifer sacrifice. The ashes mixed with the hyssop and all the other ingredients. It's in water. You mix it in water, and this now is a way you can sprinkle that water for the purpose of purification. Someone who's clean will perform that ceremony on the third and seventh day. It's interesting, the Bible mentions. Uh, the third and seventh days, third, seventh, okay? What could that mean? I don't know, but it's gonna mean something. I, have, I don't know, I have no clue yet. I haven't studied that yet, but I'm sure. <laughs> Every time the Bible gives something like this, a detail, it's a, there's a purpose behind it. And I invite you who's watching this show, try and figure out what this could mean. What could it point to? This cleansing ceremony of the third day and the seventh day, but even it's cleansed. I want you to kind of, this is a, a major clue. I, I, I know it's a clue. I just don't know exactly what clue it's for, right? But it's a clue somehow. Okay, so that's the cleansing uh, ceremony. The red heifer is to provide ceremonially unclean uh, people become clean again, to be able to worship God. So take note, to be ceremonially unclean was not quote-unquote sin, okay? Because when we think of sin, we think of disobeying the commands of Yahuwah, disobeying the Ten Commandments. It meant that one was barred from regular fellowship, service in the temple, worship of God, and their fellowship with God's people until they were made clean. Remember, Yahuwah is not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And so those who are to worship God, they have to be cleansed. They have to be atoned for by the red heifer sacrifice. Wait a minute. Does that cover... Does Yahusha's blood cover the red pepper sacrifice? What do you think? Is that included? You bet. Hebrews 9, 11 to 4, the blood of the bulls, the goats, the ashes of a heifer, the blood of Christ covers all that. The blood of Christ covers everything because he's perfect and he did this in the tabernacle in heaven. He did it once and for all and it was his own blood. A perfect sacrifice. By the Son of God, 
and take a look at what happens because it, it, it includes the ashes of a heifer. It mentions here the sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so the blood sacrifice of our King Yahushua, not only did it make us right with God, not only were our sins forgiven and atoned we were also ceremonially cleansed. This is why the Bible says to serve the living God. And so if a person was forgiven of his or her sin, but was not ceremonially cleansed, he still cannot serve the living God. This is why to worship God is a privilege and honor. It's given to those who are covered by the blood of our King, Yahusha. This is why we are thankful. We are thankful. On the Day of Atonement, we will express our thanksgiving. We will remember the work of Yahuwah, the work of Yahusha on the Day of Atonement. This is why he is our high priest, and Yahusha invites us to go to him when we need him the most to find mercy, to find grace. And so in that way, this, our observance of the Day of Atonement is a memorial. However, it's not just a memorial. It's also what? The Bible said it's a rehearsal. In other words, something is going to happen on the day of atonement. What could that be? Let's read the book of Hebrews 9, 24, 28. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. And so heaven itself, when you look at it, it's patterned after the tabernacle. Uh, he entered heaven itself. Now, not, now to appear for us in God's presence, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way high priest enters the most holy place, every year with blood, but it's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so Apostle Paul is making a connection here between the two advents of Christ, right? The first time, it's to bear sin, to die. That's the purpose of the first advent, right? Which is why he was born, he died, he was buried, and he resurrected. That's the first advent. But the Bible says he's going to appear a second time. This time, he will bring salvation to those who wait for him. That's the purpose of the other feast. And so what Apostle Paul does here is he connects the two, the two feasts together. The spring feast and the autumn feast. The spring feast, what does it do? Covers for our sins. The autumn feast is about him returning a second time so that we can have salvation. And so when the second advent of Christ comes, we are going to be saved. And so there's a connection between the, the, the spring feast and the autumn feast. And to give you an idea, to show you that pattern, which is so beautiful, I want you to look at this um, slide. It depicts Yahuwah's work of redemption and restoration, which is found in the Moedim. It's really beautiful, right? And so we have the autumn feast, day of trumpets, day of atonement, feast of... Tabernacles. We know on the trumpets was the birth of our king. Question, why 
What is our king born? When you think about the work of restoration, what's the purpose of our king? Well, it's basically to restore all things. And this will happen when he becomes the ruler of all things. When he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. And then he brings the tabernacle of God with men. And that culminates in the kingdom of heaven. And so when mankind kind of fell because of sin in the Garden of Eden, Yahuwah initiated his work of restoration, right? And this work of restoration involves a man, the son of God. And what he will do, what Yahuwah will do through our king Yahusha is to restore paradise. Remember, paradise lost, paradise regained. Where is that paradise regained? First, it's going to be the implementation of the millennial kingdom and then it's transferred to the eternal kingdom in heaven and so that's kind of representing the feast of tabernacle so the birth of yahusha and the rule of yahusha represents the restoration of heaven and earth this is why yahusha is called the kinsman the redeemer and so he's going to restore everything including the earth and so which leads to the new Jerusalem. However, between birth and rule, there has to be what? Atonement. If Yahushua was born, but he did not fulfill atonement, then there would be no tabernacles. There would be no salvation. There would be no restoration. This is why before restoration can take place on the Feast of Tabernacles, there has to be redemption first. This is why when you look at the title, Yahuwah's work of redemption and Restoration. And so the autumn feast tells us Yahuwah's work of restoration, birth to ruling, but in between you have the day of atonement, which points to what? How was atonement made and done? Huh? What do you think? You know, when you look at the autumn feasts, you have their trumpets representing the birth, Yahushua is born, and then Yahushua rules, but in between something has to happen, which is a day of which is what the Day of Atonement is all about, right? The Day of Atonement, what is that all about? It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of our King, Yerusha. Because you cannot have atonement without the death, burial, and resurrection. If it was just the death, but no resurrection, there's no atonement. You see it? This is why the autumn feasts, the middle of it, it gives us the details provided by the Spring Feast. That's why the Spring Feast and the Autumn Feast are connected. The Day of Atonement gives us the details of the Day of Atonement is provided in the first four feasts. Yahushua dies, Yahushua is buried, Yahushua is resurrected, and then what is given? The Holy Spirit, which will complete the work of restoration. You see how beautiful the Mohim is? How it shows us the work of restoration and the work of redemption, all led by the Son of God, Yahushua HaMashiach. This is what we're preparing for. This is what we are looking forward to. The day when Yahushua is going to restore everything, beginning with what he will do on their trumpets, which we studied before, as he will return for the assembly, but he will also do something on the Day of Atonement. What is that? Well, we know the Day of Atonement is about repentance, about mourning, this is in the prophecy, I will pour out on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. I'm going to pause there for a while. We know that a long time ago, some 2,000 years ago, right, um, some spiritual powers led the people of Israel to pierce Yahusha, right? And so that's also in act here. There are people who will claim to be Israel. There will be people who will be of Israel, but they do not yet recognize Yahusha as their Messiah. And so a day will come when they will mourn for him. And when do you think they're going to begin mourning for him? When do you think they're going to actually have repentance? When they're left behind, right? Can you imagine the day of trumpets? What happens on the day of trumpets? What happens on the day of trumpets? There's a rapture. Baharpatsa of the assembly of Yahushua. They're going to go to heaven. They're going to be with our king. And there are people who are going to be left behind. What are they going to do? They're going to start thinking, why are we left behind? This Mashiach that we're following, that's not, the, that's not the real one. We miss the real Mashiach. And so what are they going to do? They're going to mourn. They're going to grieve. They're going to repent. And this is what Zechariah 12 is all about. The repentance of the house of David, the people of Israel, the whole land will mourn, every family, even the wives, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and the wives by themselves. It's a general mourning. This is like what is happening in preparation for the day of atonement. And so the people left behind, they're thinking now of the Messiah. They now believe that Yahushua is the Messiah. And when they make that declaration, Yahushua can now do something. What is that? Yahushua says before he died, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahuwah. And so this is what our king is waiting for. And this is what we want to initiate. This is why we want to go to Jerusalem and declare that Yahusha is the one who is blessed, is the one who is the anointed one, who will come in the name of Yahuwah. Why? Because that would be the beginning. That would be the signal for Yahusha to return. This is why we want, what we want is for, the, for Israel, those who are coming from different places all over the world, the islands of the sea, those who will come from the part in the Middle East, near Turkey, those who are coming from Africa and all over the world, who are Israeli, who are true Israelite, they're going to, they, they, what Yahushua wants is for them to make the claim that Yahushua, to recognize Yahushua as the Mashiach, the one who comes in the name of Yahuwah. Not everyone's going to do that. And those who will not do that, they're going to be left behind. But then they will soon see Yahushua is the Messiah. And eventually, when all is said and done, Yahushua will come back, and he will, he, his feet will touch the earth on the Mount of Olives, and he will destroy. He will make war against, this is called the Armageddon War, the war that ends all wars. He will go against the Antichrist and the beast and their armies, and they will be destroyed. And Yahushua will install the millennial kingdom. And so what we have is the complete restoration of all Israel. All Israel, not just the remnants. It will begin with the remnant, but eventually all Israel is going to be 
say because they will see they will see that the remnant will receive this harpazo and they're going to be caused to be jealous and they're going to want to receive what Yahushua wants to give and so on the day of atonement we have Yahushua coming to earth it's called the second coming when we talk about the second advent of Yahushua it begins with Yahushua appearing in the clouds but he doesn't touch the earth it only happens on the day of atonement on the seventh month of tenth day so that will usher in the second coming and the uh, the judgment of our king Yahushua. Now, when will this happen? This was a question asked long ago, right? Yahushua left the temple, was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, no one, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Yahushua was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us. Uh, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so they want to know when this is coming and when is the end of the age, right? And so what was the answer of our King Yerusha? He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of war, see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. This ties into Luke chapter 21 as well. When he gave us signs in the heavens, right? The uh, the, the raging sea, the the roar, the, the, the raging uh, tides, climate-related weather, and so all this is part of the signs that Yahushua was giving: nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. Haven't you noticed all these things are taking place right now? The COVID it led to a, a big war between Russia and Ukraine and other rumors of wars. Not only that, you see, you hear about a pestilence, a pestilences and earthquakes in various places. I mean, earthquakes are happening all the time now. You notice that? Right? In Taiwan, in Mexico. These are huge earthquakes all over the place in the Philippines. These are just the beginning of sorrows. But these are not the signs Yahushua was wanting us to focus on. You know what the sign is that he wants us to really focus on? There's one sign even more poignant than this, even more powerful than this. What was that? He said this, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads like him, understand. He's talking about the coming of the Antichrist. And how can we identify the Antichrist? He's going to desecrate the temple. And so for him to desecrate the temple, there has to be a temple that has to be rebuilt. Because this Antichrist is going to be, it's called the medicine. The son of perdition, he will sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so that's the sign our King Yahushua is telling us to look out for, because when that happens, guess what? That's the sign that prepares us, that tells us he's going to be coming soon. Very, very soon. And so what we need to do is, we need to ask ourselves, well, for this to happen, there has to be a temple, right? There will be a third temple before Yahushua, returns this is why is it possible now for that temple to be built because once that temple is being rebuilt there in, in jerusalem guess what yahushua's coming is very very near very very near well is it possible for the temple to be built in jerusalem today you know just 75 years ago 75 years. how many here lived 74 years ago if you lived 74 years ago it was unthinkable. It was impossible 
that the third temple would ever be built. This is why the Bible scholars who were reading the Bible's prophecies in Daniel and Matthew, they made the conclusion that these prophecies about a third temple that is to be built, they said, oh, it's only allegory. Because back then it was impossible. There's just no way you would be able to build a temple in Israel, Jerusalem, because of this. They said, oh, it's just symbolism, right? But then something happened 74 years ago, which is part of the preparations for the third temple. You know what happened about 74 years ago? In 1948, Israel became a nation. Yeah, this Israel is not the people of God. However, this is important because without Israel becoming a nation, how can a temple be built, right? And so this was allowed by Yahuwah to happen. Israel becomes a nation. 1967, Israel captures Jerusalem. And since 1967, there has been a movement in Israel to rebuild the Holy Temple. Today, many of the preparations for the Third Temple have already been completed, including the sacred worship vessels, the priestly garments to be worn the Levites and temple services. Moreover, over 500 young Jewish men descended from the tribe of Levi has been trained as temple priests to fulfill their duties of worship and sacrifice in the temple. And so preparations are being made in Israel right, by the people who live there to build a third temple to initiate the services in the temple. The only thing in 1967 that's standing in their way is the opportunity to build, right? That's another stumbling block. First stumbling block, there was no Israel. How can we build? That was resolved, right? Next, well, they had to capture Jerusalem because they're going to build it in Jerusalem. That was resolved. Now, another problem comes up. Another obstacle is the Temple Mount is currently occupied by the Dome of the Rock. And if you remove the Dome of the Rock and build your temple there, I don't think the Muslims are going to accept that, right? However, what they found out is the actual place and location of the Temple is not where the Dome of the Rock is at. According to researchers, it's actually located somewhere below the present-day mount. And so this tells us, see the red part, that's where it's built, the green part, that's where the Dome Rock is. So it's not possible to rebuild the temple without causing problems with the Muslim community. And so all the third problem was solved, right? Israel became, becomes a nation. Jerusalem belongs to Israel. And now they can really build the temple. But there's one more big, big, big hindrance, obstacle. You know what that is? Before they can perform these services, they need a red heifer. And it's very rare to obtain a red heifer so that they can start building the, their new temple. Why is that? Because the Jews believe, right, according to rabbinical tradition, there have been nine red heifers a sacrifice since Moses' time. Since the destruction of the second temple, no red heifers have been slaughtered. The rabbi Maimonides thought that the tenth red heifer would be sacrificed by the Messiah himself. No one may say Messiah himself is the Jewish Messiah, right? Not Yahusha. They don't believe Yahusha is the Messiah. They believe Yahusha was born in adultery. So they don't believe Yahusha is the Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah. They believe when the red heifer is present, the one who will sacrifice is the Messiah. 
the last Messiah, their Messiah. You know what that means? When the red heifer appears, the Messiah, the false Messiah, the Antichrist is right around the corner, right? Because they believe that the tenth red heifer will be the one sacrificed by their Messiah. Those who anticipate the construction of the third temple are eager to find a red heifer that meets all the conditions because the red heifer ashes will be necessary to purify the new temple. Many consider that the appearance of the red heifer will herald the construction of the temple and the return of Christ. According to the Temple Institute, a group advocating the construction of a third temple, a flawless red heifer was born, August 2018 in Israel. In actuality, we already have five candidates. I was flown in to Israel not too long ago, right? And from Texas to Israel, red heifers needed for temple to ride. And we have some friends who are in Israel today. And according to them, it's being housed in some place where it's being taken care of. And the buzz in Israel is they're planning to complete the temple by April of 2023. So there's going to be a temple if their plans go well, that will be built and operational by April 2023 for the Jewish Passover. And so the, the appearance of a red heifer is a signal that the Antichrist is coming. The temple is being rebuilt. What does this mean? It means the coming of the true Messiah is at hand. So it's possible we are alive today we will see the appearing of our king, Yahushua. And this is exciting for all of us. The red heifer sacrifice, the bull sacrifice, the goat sacrifice, we don't need all that. We only need one sacrifice. That's the sacrifice of our king, Yahushua. He did this on Passover. And now he has become our high priest. This is what we celebrate. This is what we observe from the king. He is our high priest. As our high priest, we can go to him. Especially now, when his appearing is going to be within our reach. And so because it is within our reach, in the first passage we read today, before we pray together, I want to read it again. It's something we need to take to heart, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brethren, that day is at hand. That day is at hand. And so what must we do? Let us fight the good fight of faith. Let's finish the race. Let's keep the faith. Now is not the time to drop out of the race. Now is the time to intensify fighting that good fight of faith and keeping our faith. Because the finish line is within sight. That day is within sight. So what do we need to practice every day in our life? Let us long for the appearing of our king. Our king was born on trumpets to initiate the first advent. And he will return on trumpets so that we can be taken with him to initiate the second advent. So that salvation can be given to all the people of the world through Israel because those who belong to Mashiach they become spiritual Israel they become Israel and so brothers and sisters 
Let us fight the good fight of faith. Let us keep the faith. Let us continue until the end and every day long for the appearing of our King and Mashiach, Yahushua. And this is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, merciful and gracious Allahim in heaven, Yahuwah Abba, Yahuwah Almighty, we thank you for providing us with the opportunity to fellowship with you. Because of the shed blood of your son, we have been brought near and have become your sons and daughters. A new way of life has been made available to us through the curtain that has been removed. Thank you for inviting us into fellowship with you. Help us, Father, that we will not be distracted. Instead, we will be focused in the work ahead, the work when you will send your son, that we can receive our salvation. Yahusha, our King, so many things are happening in the world today that bring worry and fear in the hearts of men. People are afraid of poverty and hardship, disease, calamities, natural disasters, earthquakes in various places, wars and rumors of wars. Many people don't know where to go to, but we know you are the rock. You are the one shown by Abba to be the place we need to go to. You are the safe place because in you there's no condemnation. Help us to spread this good news. Help us to proclaim it everywhere. You are the hope for all mankind. While there is time, help us to be your mouthpieces. Help us to do our best to spread the message of your good news that many shall receive salvation. We long for your appearing. We long for it with all of our heart. On that day, every person suffering, every person living in pain, those who are sick, we will be completely healed. Those who have died in you, they will rise again. What a glorious day that would be, a day of celebration. It gives us hope because on that day we will see your face at last, be embraced by you to be with you forevermore. Help us to fight the good fight of faith, to finish our race and to stand strong proclaiming you mightily. Father, thank you for listening to our prayers. Prepare us for our autumn feasts, especially as we prepare for the Day of Atonement. Teach us, loving Abba, to look at our life, to truly repent, to afflict our souls, to humble ourselves, to bow before your presence, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, that you might be pleased with each and every one of us. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.